Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are in the Book of Romans as we continue on going through the New Testament. And man, exciting day. I, Rob, these are always the best when we get to bring on a guest, especially people who have made significant uh, impacts in the field of biblical scholarship and like a book like Romans. It's exciting just to have a, any kind of repeated guest, but this is a special repeated guest. So go ahead and give an intro on this one. Yeah, we're really excited to have Michael uh, Gorman with us today. Michael's an American New Testament scholar. He's the Raymond E. Brown Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary University, written a number of books. Uh, some of you might recall that we had him on last year to discuss the 20th anniversary edition of his book, Cruciformity. He's also written Apostle of the Crucified Lord, a theological introduction to Paul and uh, his letters. He's written uh, Reading Paul, and I won't go on the list any further. But Thank you, Rob, for having me back, and uh, and Vinny as well. And it's uh, good to meet you, Vinny. Yeah, so, Michael, uh, I said before we started the, com- the, the recording that your commentary uh, that we're discussing today is called Romans, a Pastoral and Theological Commentary. It's fabulous. If anyone's listening out there, if anyone's listening out there, uh, <laughs> make sure you pick it up. Uh, it wrestles with a text and deals deeply with it. So you're not going to get compromised on that. But it also deals with contemporary issues. Uh, quite, there are questions for those who preach and for those who teach. And there's a bibliography at the end of each section. And I went through the bibliography. I'm like, that's a great resource. That's a great resource. Mm-hmm. So if you're studying for the first time or early on in the process, wanting to teach and preach through Romans, this is a great resource. Let's begin, Michael, with asking you the question of, hey, just kind of an open mic. What would you summarize the book of Romans? What's its argument? What's its message? Just as much as you can talk for 20 minutes if you want or five, whatever you feel like. So. Okay. Well, thank you for the question. Uh, Wow. Well, Romans is obviously the longest letter Paul wrote. It's the most complicated. It's the most theologically dense, but it's also a pastoral letter. In the commentary, I call it a a pastoral letter essay. Other people have used similar language. So it's got this complex argument, but it's always focused on the situation at Rome, I think, and therefore also has pastoral significance for us today. But um, as you know, if you've read any of the uh, little summaries of the book on Amazon or at Erdmans.com or whatever. The, the key word for me for Romans is life. Uh, everybody says that John is the gospel of life. I like to say that Romans is the epistle of life. So it's about the life that God wants to share with us, um, that wants us to share in community. That life is uh, in Christ. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's that's certainly, if you will, if I had to pick just one theme out of Romans or one aspect of Romans, that'd be the one that I would emphasize. And that, that as we'll probably talk about later, it comes out of my strong emphasis in Paul's studies on um, participation in Christ. But anyhow, I'll come back, come back to that. But as for the argument of that letter with that overall theme, what we see in Romans, I mean, almost everybody agrees Romans has four major parts, chapters 1 to 4, 5 to 8, 9 to 11, 12 to 16, or 12 to 15 at least. And Paul is there in that four-part, if you will, sequence or argument, trying to show that that God has acted to rectify the human condition, and not just to count people righteous who are unrighteous, but really to set the world aright, to to fix it, to, to fix human relationships, both with one another and especially with God, and um, to do that in a way that is exemplified in the letter as bringing together uh, or bringing back together perhaps Roman Christians or Christians at Rome who are both Gentile and Jewish. So it's it's a kind of cultural reconciliation or intercultural reconciliation, if you will. So the letter moves from um, sort of uh, exclaiming the gospel of God's righteousness or justice, God's writing, writing of the world, and then explaining the need for that in the first few chapters, uh, both for Gentiles and Jews, uh, explaining then in following that what that gospel looks like and how it plays out in real life in a kind of general way in chapters, let's say, four to eight. He then deals with the question, if if this is such a great thing, why have so few Jewish folks believed it? Uh, How does does Paul rectify, or I can say reconcile perhaps, 
the the God of of Israel and and God's faithfulness with the largely Gentile reality of the early Christian church. And that leads then into the what I think is the culmination of the letter, 12 to 15, especially, where Paul is is talking about what does this life look like on the ground? What does it look like in Rome in particular? And more generally, what does it look like for all of us who who follow in uh, in Paul's in Paul's footsteps? So that's if we want to call it an argument, I think it is an argument, but it's a pastoral argument. And it focuses on, as I mentioned at the very beginning, it focuses on this new life that we have in Christ. Um, yeah, that's probably enough to get us started. Can you summarize for us a little bit briefly what you think the issue in Rome is that Paul's addressing? Yeah. I think the issue that he is addressing is the um is 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 primarily the conflict between Gentile and Jewish believers over their relationship to one another, their relationship to the God of Israel, and what that new community, if you will, of Gentiles and Jews, or let's update it, of uh, of blacks and whites, of mm-hmm. Asians and and Europeans, what does that new community look like so that it can be a witness to God's mission in the world in the reality of Rome or Baltimore or Southern California, Paris, Zimbabwe, wherever you happen to be? So, uh, yeah, life together. I mean, Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, in a way, mm-hmm. is summar- I think summarizes what Paul is up to. Robin mentioned earlier how this is very much a contemporary commentary that you wrote. And man, that is such the truth, because when you go through this, many of the sidebars that you have in there and the examples you bring are bringing in the most recent contemporary issues you can. So just another plug for Mm -hmm. the book. Uh, I mean, this is so culturally relevant as well as theologically uh, rich. But you had mentioned earlier when you started setting up your overview, you, you use this word participationist view. And that's something that is going to be, I, I think, very uh, unfamiliar for m- many folks. Because uh, as uh, Rob and I talked about in our introduction to the series of, of Romans, Romans is oftentimes viewed just as this vertical thing. How do I get right with God individually? And, and you're bringing in this, you know, expanding it to much more of a horizontal perspective. What do you mean by participationist view? Sure. I would commend to your listeners and to you guys, if you haven't seen it, a little book called Preaching Romans that Urbans came out with a few years ago, Four Perspectives. Mm. And so it has uh, the traditional perspective, the new perspective, uh, the apocalyptic perspective, Douglas Campbell and people like that, and the participationist perspective. Scott McKnight's a contributor, but there's there's a, an essay on each of these perspectives. And then uh, three, I think it's three sermons related to that particular perspective. So for instance, Richard Hayes writes a, a sermon in my in my section on participation. So yeah, most people hear hear about the traditional perspective, the new perspective, they might hear about the apocalyptic perspective, but unfortunately the participationist mm-hmm. perspective is kind of the the you know the fifth wheel and or something like that. But what what the participationist perspective actually has a very long pedigree goes all the way back to at least the second century and and I would say to the first century. But anyhow, it's the perspective on interpreting Paul that really emphasizes God's participation with us so that we can participate with God. Mm-hmm. And that specifically in Paul, the language is, is the language of in Christ, with Christ, into Christ, that kind of language, which, for instance, in Christ alone occurs 160 times in the Pauline corpus. Has wow. a variety of meanings, but that's a lot of lot of a lot of terminology. So there's been in the 20th and now the early in the early 21st century a revival of interest in rather than seeing justification in the, in the narrow sense of the word as the center of Paul's theology or the main thing he's up to, it focuses the participationist perspective focuses on being outside Christ, being transferred into Christ, being in Christ, where we now have our identity, where we now have our transformation. And that is both a vertical experience, if we want to use um, that kind of language, 
a vertical experience with God and Christ and the Spirit, but it's also a horizontal experience. We are baptized into the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. We live in Christ together. It's not just me and Jesus going, and so I can go to heaven when I die, which is such a distorted view of the New Testament and, and of mm -hmm. Paul more specifically. I don't know if that. Go ahead, Vinny. No, no, this is good because my tradition, Rob and I, we we talked about this in our uh, in the opening episode. How uh, I, I come from a Reformed Baptist tradition. That's that's where I lie. And so, you, like Rob and I talked about the differences between where he might sit fully in a new perspective, and, and and where I'm coming from. And we talked about our unity and whatnot. From what I'm hearing you say in the participationist view. In my own tradition, what being pinged up is saying, oh, that sounds like a lot of union with Christ theology, So, it, which is going to be steeped like in a traditional Reformation view. So how might you say, what are the nuances or distinctions between a participationist view and what we might find in union with Christ type teachings? There's a lot of overlap, for sure. Union with Christ language permeates Calvin mm -hmm. and Luther uh, and they're they're dependent actually on Augustine and Irenaeus. So I mean, this, like I said, this goes way way back. I think the major, but there there's several differences. But the the major difference is how central do we make this in our understanding of Paul? Certainly, Calvin and Luther would say you can't have justification without union with Christ. They're inseparable. And I would say the same thing. I would simply have a somewhat, and I think most participationists perspectivists would have a slightly different way of, of understanding justification as itself participatory and transformative. So um, there's a lot of overlap. I've actually been criticized for this, but in that Breaching Romans book in my essay, which tries to trace the participation theme, it does trace it from Romans 1 to Romans 16. I actually suggest that this view can incorporate any of the other three, traditional mm -hmm. And, and some people have said, well, you're you're yielding too much ground. You're giving too much to the traditional view or too much to the, you know, whatever. But I, I see it as a kind of umbrella that can incorporate a variety of, of views. But let me follow up with that. There's a quote from your book. It says, you said, uh, Romans calls the church to embody the gospel and that this permeates its pages to participate in God's missional activity. I think this is what we're talking about, right? Since God desires all to confess Jesus as Lord, this participation is critical to Christian mission. Since God is forming a people in Christ, Christian community of various kinds is itself a form of mission. Since God in Christ is bringing shalom, which you, in parentheses you say a peace, justice, and abundant life, to the world, or shalom to the world, practicing peace, justice, and other life-giving spiritual disciplines is essential to Christian mission. Mm. So this is what you're talking about, that this gospel is something that we are called to participate in. Yes. And that's the rubber meeting the road in, in Romans 12 to 15, which I'm sure yes. we'll come back to. But, right. you know, if you if you have a truncated gospel, the Roman road type of gospel, mm, you know, right, pick, right. A, pick a few texts. And, um, and if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. Well, that's true. Mm -hmm. But what does all that mean? And what does right. it mean in the context of Romans? What does it mean in the context of Christian living, Christian theology? And as a matter of fact, I think from Paul's point of view, a truncated gospel is really not good news. What God is doing, according to Paul, is to bring about that which the promise of the prophets promised, the new covenant, the, the age of shalom, the age of, of justice and peace. God has acted in Christ to bring about the new creation, the new covenant, the new life. And to the degree that we omit that and fa fail both to participate in that ourselves and to share it so that others can participate in it, we've not, I would say we're not only truncating the gospel, we're actually abandon, abandoning the gospel. I mean, how does Romans begin? The obedience of faith. Mm -hmm. How does it end in 1626? The obedience of faith, like mm. bookends for the gospel. Excellent. Yeah. So what does it mean to, to be uh, people of faithful obedience? What does it mean to be people whose allegiance, if we want to take that mm. kind of understanding of faithfulness, whose allegiance is to this king, to, to use Vinny's uh, word from the opening prayer, to King Jesus, allegiance to King Jesus. What does that mean on the ground? Mm you know, to continue on this idea of the commitment to peace and what this looks like in this new 
new thing that God is creating and, and making things right. You you write in the book, in general, most Christians have paid insufficient attention to the gospel's focus on violence, verbal and physical, emotional and spiritual, individual and corporate, privately executed and state sanctioned as a fundamental dimension of the human predicament that God in Christ came to heal. This is something where it, especially in our American context, mm -hmm. we just have such a, a compartmentalization where maybe we could read this ideal thing in the Bible, whether it's Jesus or Paul, you know, t teaching Jesus. And we could just completely disassociate that from how we actually think of mm. how the world ought to be and how justice ought to be executed and what should seem Christianly, right? Yeah. I think that in general, the Christian church, including the evangelical wing, has come a long way in that direction, in that area over the last few decades. We just, uh, as you may know, we just lost Ron Sider this mm -hmm. last week. Uh, he, he died of, of cancer at 82. Ron was a friend. And I think people like Ron Sider have led the church just to see the breadth, the holistic character of the gospel over the last you know, 50 years or whatever. Uh, but with respect to violence, and, and Ron was a, a strong advocate of the essential character of peace in the gospel. But uh, you read Romans 3, where Paul sort of, right before he presents the good news once again in 321 to 26, he lays out the human condition. And wow, it's, it's violence from head to toe, the way we act, the way we speak, the way we walk. And all you have to do is open, you know, any internet site, news site, or any newspaper, or listen on the radio to CNN or wherever your favorite <laughs> newscasts. And violence seems seems to be the the character of this country, and for that matter, the character of the world. I I think we do miss it, and if we if we overlook it, it's problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In your opening, when you're describing the book, you talk about how Romans 12 through 15 become kind of the apex. I don't think you use that phrase, but th this becomes the point, right? <laughs> We're pushing to this. So you suggest that chapters 12 through 15 is about nonconformity to this age in reference to the age to come in these dual ages that exist. So the spirit of nonconformity and transformation is the prerequisite for knowing and doing God's will, you write. And it is the fundamental framework for everything that follows. So what do you think Paul means by this, you know, this concept? And what do you think Paul would say to us today when it comes to the topic of nonconformity to this age? Yeah. There's so much in that question and so mm -hmm. much to think mm -hmm. about. But the Romans 12, 1 to 2 is obviously the juncture where Paul has made the primary theological argument about the gospel. He has outlined in brief form what it means to be baptized into Christ, into his death and resurrection, to live in the spirit, Romans 8. Now he's going to, as I said earlier, you know, talk about what this means on the ground. But to, to preface that, he has to make the now very strong case that this means what in traditional Christian language might be called a, a case for holiness. Mm -hmm. If we understand the root meaning of holiness as being set apart for God uh, and for God's purposes, and therefore I, I like to use the word either countercultural or alter-cultural, A-L-T-E-R, cultural, although a good pun could be in Romans 12, 1 to 2, Paul's using alter, A-L-T-A-R, mm -hmm. cultural language, mm -hmm. the idea of a living sacrifice. That's not in the commentary, but I, I do, occasionally, I do okay. occasionally preach Se that. Second edition will come out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, be not conformed to this age assumes, and by the way, that's the proper translation there, not to this world, but to this mm -hmm. age, this cultural ethos that we live in. Don't be conformed to this. It kind of assumes that the natural habitat is conformity. To, and, and that we need to stop that. As some people have said over the years, Christian formation is a process of unlearning and relearning. Mm -hmm. So we need to unlearn the habits and the practices of the culture. Uh, I refer to John Barclay's, uh, who's drawing on Pierre Bourdieu. He, he refers to a Christian habitus, a Christian worldview slash set of practices. And um, 
Back in the second church, second century, the epistle uh, of Diognetus says, we, we're, we, we live in the same country as everybody else, but we do things differently. We don't share the marriage bed. We share lots of things. We don't share the marriage bed. We, we are residents of every country and residents of no country. Mm. So there's kind of an update a little bit, a kind of universal understanding of, of identity rather than a nationalistic or tribalistic understanding of identity. Anyhow, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove in practice what it is that God wishes, God's will. So this combination of transformation of the mind to end up in, in practices, in, in real life practices. So to update that a little bit and to think about our own culture, I think Paul would say we need to think very differently from how everybody else thinks about politics, about national identity, about sexuality, about vocation. Uh, Tertullian mm -hmm. at the end of the second century said, there's, there's vocations that Christians shouldn't participate in mm. because they involve idolatry. Hmm. Man, I'd love to have a discussion with the youth group of every church in the United States. What are the potentially idolatrous vocations mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that you and your colleagues, you know, your peers are looking at? And I'll, I'll be brazen about this. Are, are there certain vocations that inherently have to practice violence and therefore should not be part mm -hmm. of the Christian vocation? Mm -hmm. Those are tough words for, for people to hear, mm -hmm. much less to, to think about. So, uh, I mean, we we can go on and on. The, the kinds of cars we drive, you know, I'm speaking back to Ron Sider again. Uh, he started that campaign years ago about uh, what would Jesus drive, you know, mm. WWJD. <laughs> that helped Christians begin to think more about the environment. You know, mm -hmm. it sounds like a silly question at first, but uh, creation care has become part of what we do as Christians. Right. And uh, so what we eat, what would, you know, in the commentary, when I talk about Romans 14 in, in uh, particular, that's an issue about people disagreeing about, about food, whether they're going to be vegetarian or not. I just take that a little step further and say, should we be thinking for, for moral reasons about what we eat, mm -hmm. given mm -hmm. the world situation, given our own health issues? So... Mm -hmm. Every aspect of life needs to come into the lordship of Christ. And that's sort of what Paul's talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Can we frame this in light of what you were saying earlier that this age, the kingdoms of this world, operate on violence. They operate on power. They operate on stepping on the on the little person. That's the way they are. And, and there's almost nothing they can do about it. It's just simply it's a nature of human nature. Those who have power want to retain their power. And they use that power in violence, military oppression, whatever it might be. And the kingdom of God is Christ's kingdom that we are to participate in is one of in which we become the sacrifice. The violence is actually done to us because we live this life of peace. And do you think that's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is getting at? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices that, hey, the kingdom of Christ is established through the cross. And I want you guys living now cross-bearing lives as opposed to lives of this world. Yeah, absolutely. It's that and more. I think that's that's the starting point language of sacrifice is in in one sense says what does um what does the christian sacrificial system looks look like and it looks like a corporate life of self-giving sacrificial love which then again gets spelled out in a little further in romans 12 and in romans 13 and in terms of hospitality and and peacemaking you mentioned the kingdom i think most people recognize that Paul doesn't use kingdom language a lot, but in chapter 14, he says the kingdom of God is not about food. It's about justice and peace and the Holy Spirit. That's the term often translated righteousness. But I think in light of the argument of Romans as a whole, is talking about God's way of fixing the, the world through this uh, the justice displayed on, on the cross. 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. Let's uh, jump forward to chapter 13, uh, Romans 13. You open this section up, and this is a brilliant uh, chapter, uh, oh, very helpful you. in so many so many ways. And you say uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 specifically, is among the most difficult, potentially disturbing, and even possibly dangerous of all of Pauline texts. So let me go ahead and read the text right here. So it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have uh, no fear of the authority? Then do what is good and you will receive its approval for it's God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you, sh- you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servant, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue, revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due honor to whom honor is due yeah there's so much to say about that about Mm -hmm. that passage so let me start with the kind of the initial question which is how has it been abused over the centuries that text has been made into kind of the political uh, mantra of the new testament this is this is the the christian view of politics you submit you obey even thankfully this translation did not use the word obey which does not appear in the passage Mm -hmm. in greek and, and it's been, therefore, used, especially by those in power, to go back to Rob's earlier comment, to enforce power, to practice power by the divine right of kings, by tyrants, very popular text in the, in the era of Hitler. And just to update it, you know, a few years ago, Jeff Sessions and Sarah Huckabee Sanders either quoted or alluded to this text saying, you know, the government says we're going to do certain things and to migrants and caging children and all of that. And you just need to accept that because the Bible says this is when the government says it, you do it. So um, lots of people over the centuries have said, well, we can't simply say Romans 13. However, it's interpreted as all that the Bible says about politics. You have Revelation 13, the beast. Mm -hmm. But just sticking with Romans 13 in its context, the, the main point I'd want to make, even if people disagree with the conclusions that I come to, the, the main point I want to make is that however we interpret Romans 13, 1 to 7, we cannot interpret it in a way that contradicts the context in which it sits. And if Romans 12, 1 to 2, and the end of Romans 12, and the subsequent uh, verses in Romans 13 are taken seriously, mm. we have a continual emphasis on Paul of a distinctive culture, a distinctive body of people called the church that cannot simply cowtail to the political authorities. And I I think what Romans 13 is essentially saying is what Jesus said when he was approached with the, the coin whose head is on it, pay your taxes. This does not mean obey and and follow everything the government says. I mean, if Jesus is Lord, how could a Christian possibly do that? Mm -hmm. To simply obey Mm -hmm. um, any particular government or government leader because they speak would be to betray the obedience of faith, would be to betray the confession that Jesus is Lord. I think most Christians realize that if they think carefully, but we easily get caught up in either the spirit of the culture right now, which is not just in the United States, but around the world, is highly nationalistic. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we want to read Romans 13 to say, obey the authorities no matter what, 
when, as I said a moment ago, the word obey does not even appear in that text. In Romans and in Paul generally, you obey God, you obey Christ, you obey the gospel. You don't obey simply anybody because they're in power. And that's well, a point you make in the in chapter when you write on chapter 13, where at even at the root of it, submit, submit and obey do not mean mm -hmm. the same thing. Those are right. not synonymous terms, right. uh, which is just a great point because I oftentimes I make this point in my own context when I teach it in my own church, where there was a season for about four years where I saw Romans 13 quoted, you know, by the evangelical right so many times. And it's amazing how that passage has just like vanished from the Bible in the last couple of years. How come that same standard mm -hmm. still does not exist? And, and that's not to make a political statement. That's to make a theological statement. It's like, hey, folks, how come we're so convenient with when we apply a certain Bible verse? And then along with that, something like that, it's, it's very convenient to apply in our modern culture now when your guy is in charge. But can the same theological principle be applied to our brothers and sisters who live in North Korea or China say, yeah. or Argentina or yeah. wherever it might be? Right. Yeah. The people in North Korea, the Christians in North Korea can't are, are not going to use that verse. Mm -mm. The Christians in China are not going to use that verse. It only can be used the way we're talking about here inappropriately by those who are in power or supporting those who are in power. But it's not a but the reality is, as, as you said with, with Jesus and the taxes, Christ is in power, and he's the only one to whom we have that ultimate uh, obedience. If you take that one step further, of course, the answer is, well, submit to your governing authorities. And if you choose to disobey, like Daniel in the lion's den or, or Daniel's three, three buddies, then be ready to suffer the consequences for doing so, because it violates you know, the book of Acts. Tell us whether we should obey the laws of man or, the, or whether we should obey God. So, Right. That, that's a great, a great analogy or a great connection there, the we have to obey God rather than man, you know, yeah. or men. In that regard as well, I, I wish I had put this in the book, but a number of people have suggested that Jesus is the greatest example of, of submitting rather mm -hmm. than obeying. Mm -hmm. right. He took the consequences. Yep. He did not renounce his kingship. He did not, you know, betray his calling. Rather, he did exactly what he was supposed to do, which is obey his father and submit to mm -hmm. um, the consequences of that, which were crucifixion. Yeah, I, I think that's ultimately the theme of First Peter, right? Hey, let me comment on this and see what you think about this. Uh, Richard Horsley, I know you, I know you know his works because I actually I came to find out Richard Horsley's works because of one of your footnotes and one of your one of your oh. other books. Uh, I'm like, okay. oh, got to check this guy out. But Richard Horsley makes the argument. He says this. He says, "quote When Jewish writings from the Psalms to the Apocalypses of the Roman period spoke of the justice of God, they were not primarily concerned with spiritual questions of an individual's right standing before God." but with the end of an unjust social order and the hope for vindication of the innocent against their enemies. As you know, a lot of his writings are, hey, the gospel message of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and on Paul is anti-imperialistic. And obviously that would put this Romans 13 into a certain context now, right? What do you think of his thesis or of that idea? Yeah. This has been a, uh, a point of my interest for the last 20 or 30 years. It's been a point of contention among New Testament scholars. Uh, I don't know Dick Horsley personally. I know his work and I've, I've been with him at conferences, but a good friend of mine from graduate school days, Warren Carter, mm -hmm. has also written uh, on this subject with a very strong interpretation of um, uh, Empire and John, Matthew. Yeah, Rob, go ahead. Yeah, we had Warren Carter on our podcast already. So just so you know. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To discuss, to discuss Empire and, and mm -hmm. uh, the gospel. So that was great. He's a good guy. Yeah. I think the debate between John, famous debate between John Barclay and N.T. Wright some years ago, where Barclay allegedly won the day, at least according to most, because he showed at least explicitly Paul never comes out and explicitly criticizes the empire. Mm -hmm. He has bigger fish to fry, Barclay basically said, and those are cosmic powers. Mm. Wright retorted with a line from First Thessalonians about peace and security when there is none, and also, I think, appealed to the Book of Acts, as I recall, but implied, or, or rather suggested there are plenty of implications that Paul's theology and uh, gospel are implicitly anti-imperial. That is to say, and I think I would agree with that, that is to say, Paul's main agenda is to bring forth the gospel, the good news, and that that word itself was used, or words like it were used 
in imperial context to talk about the good news, the birth of an emperor, the accession of an emperor to power and things like that. So there is an implicit, as Tom Wright likes to say, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Exactly. Right, right. If the gospel of, of God is, is the good news for the world, then the gospel of Rome is not. And that theme or that way of saying it permeates my commentary. So I wouldn't go as far as Dick Horsley is to say, this is Paul's main agenda to make it completely, from his point of view, political. But I also wouldn't want to play down the political dimension or the political implications of Paul's theology, Paul's Paul's gospel. And I think Horsley is right that this gospel is not primarily or only or merely about individuals getting in the right relationship with God, especially so they go to heaven when they die. But as I've said before, and now again to quote Tom Wright, putting the world to rights, that, mm -hmm. nice, that nice British phrase, which t Tom uses all the time. Paul uses the phrase, moving into chapter 14, he, he uses the phrase kingdom of God, which is very rare for Paul. You just don't find that like you do in the Gospels. Um, why, don't, why don't we see this in, in Paul and even outside of the Gospels? Why does this just seem to be absent? Yeah, my my... Basic answer to that is that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, and the early church recognized when Jesus was raised by that heavenly father that the, the way of communicating this good news was to talk primarily about the lordship of Christ. So it's not either or, but rather now the resurrected Christ is is reigning, is Lord, shares in the divine identity, shares in the divine reign. That's the newness, part, at least in part, of the gospel, of the new covenant, of the new creation. And that's the way that um, they experience God, if you will, by the presence of the spirit of Christ slash the spirit of God. And, and so their language is the language of the reality of Jesus' lordship. That's Paul's primarily, primary uh mini version of the gospel, Jesus is Lord. We see that in Romans. We see it in 1 Corinthians. We see it in Philippians. Uh, that seems to be the direction the church went in. But we see in Romans 14 that that is still kingdom of God language. It's it's not an either or, as I said. It, it's, it's rather a new emphasis, a new focus. That's the right answer, but that's my answer. <laughs> Very good. Your answer is always the correct answer, uh, at least for the at least for this hour. Yes. Okay. There you go. Um, not when you leave and go talk to your wife, then then all, all bets are off. But yeah. we, we are, you are going to tell that to all my students and colleagues. As well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, no, I said only for this hour. So, uh, I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. I think that Jesus' own message, the historical Jesus, such as we can there is such a, a, a critter. Um, the real Jesus, the, the remembered Jesus, spoke always about the, the kingdom of yeah, God. Right, that's what I was thinking, yeah. Um, John's language is more the language, not completely, but more the language of eternal life. I don't think mm -hmm. those are mutually exclusive either, and certainly right. not certainly not simply spiritual. John 10, abundant life is all about the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 and the abundant life uh, of prosperity and in material and spiritual way anyhow so my own theory about this is is that the the synoptic gospels precede paul and john follows paul in terms uh not necessarily in terms of the construction of the final form of the gospels okay. the basic content and and yet so i would say kingdom of god language precedes lordship language which okay. precedes eternal life language but there's a little bit of all three in all three um groupings of of canonical documents let's move on so i think we told you before uh, we started recording that we're going to have some lengthy discussions on romans 9 through 11 but let's just bring it up here uh, briefly here romans 9 through 11 is quite controversial right Paul seems to be answering the question about, you know, well, what about the Jewish people? Has God forgotten them? And so there's this thought out there in certain circles that 
Romans 9 through 11 is teaching that there's going to be a mass conversion of the Jewish people right before the second coming of Jesus or some some type of end times thing based on Romans 11, 26, where Paul says that all Israel will be saved. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are that even though I have a, pers a perspective and a position on these issues, that Paul makes it pretty clear at the end of Romans 11 that this is mysterious. Mm, okay. Uh, what, what I call in the commentary the mystery of mercy, that God's uh, ways are not our ways, and we don't completely understand. But theologically, for me at least, Romans 9 to 11 is primarily making one claim, that God is not a promise breaker. Mm-hmm. And that means that the, the chosen people, the people of Israel, are not forgotten by God. And, and the, the occasion for having Paul having to say this is, both in Rome and everywhere else, most Jewish people have not yet believed the gospel. Mm -hmm. That drives Paul to tears. Mm -hmm. he's, he's lamenting that in, in Romans 9 in particular. But as he works through the, the three chapters we call Romans 9 to 11 as a, as a whole, he moves toward the idea that this is a partial and temporary situation and that God is going to rectify it simply because the promises of God are irrevocable. Mm. The word of God is not good. So uh, I often tell my students, and I, I sort of do this in the commentary, think of the end of Romans 11 as a journalist. The who, what, when, where, how kinds of questions that journalists like to ask. So all Israel will be saved. Who is the who there? Uh, is it mean? Does it mean all Israel in the sense of a kind of a spiritual Israel? Tom Wright's argument. I don't think so. I think the argument of Romans nine to eleven is Paul's concern about ethnic Israel. That's my view. Mm -hmm. I try to hold it with some humility. When will they be saved? Paul is obviously not opposed to Jewish people believing the gospel during his lifetime. Right. So he, I think he wants, hopes his fellow Jews to believe the gospel. And uh, that's part of his, according to both Acts and the, the letters, that's part of what he does is bring the gospel to Israel or bring Israel to the gospel. But at least... For the moment, all Israel is not saved, and so there has to be some eschatological dimension to this saving, in, in my view, to the saving endeavor of God. How? Uh, I think it's pretty clear that the return of the Messiah, the deliverer from Zion, is a reference to the parousia. And uh, if he says in Romans 10 that the way to, to salvation is through confession of Jesus as Lord, it seems to me that that has got to be the criterion for salvation in, in Romans 11 as well. So um, I respect but completely disagree. I mean, I respect the people. I completely disagree with those who say Jews, uh, according to Paul, will be saved by virtue of keeping Torah, don't need to have faith in Jesus. That right. seems to me to, to contradict everything from Romans to mm -hmm. everywhere else. So that's my basic take with some degree of humility. Okay. I was just gonna say on that topic, because when this comes up, especially in our American context, it's it's immediately seen in either a dispensational eschatological view or something else on the covenantal side of the equation, if you want to categorize it theologically like that. So obviously the the view that you know you just alluded to where it's by keeping Torah, okay, let, let's take that off the equation as being viable because even in the in the dispensational view, and I don't want to go overly theological here. It's just there's going to be people listening to this that that's the camp that they're going to be growing up in. So even in in many of the dispensational views, it's going to be no. There's going to a saving faith in Christ by Jews at the end time. You're reading this and you're saying, yeah, I, I'm I'm seeing something to be faithful to text that says it has something to do with ethnic Israel. But what you don't mean is in the dispensational construct of things. What do you do with this then? Or are you just, you know, do you just allow it to say, hey, I'm holding this with an open hand. I'm not trying to put the details too far or push the details too far. Like, like, how do you wrestle with that? Or are you just okay not wrestling with it and saying it's something here? Yeah, I, I mean, Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. And to to try to map, say, Romans 11 onto some dispensational scheme based in 
a misreading of Revelation or whatever mm -hmm. seems to me to be exactly the opposite of the spirit of humility that Paul, as he struggles with this issue, comes to the end and says, the only thing I know for sure is that God is faithful mm -hmm. to promises. And therefore, God is going to be merciful. God has been merciful to Jews and Gentiles alike. If Paul is, con is content to leave it there, I'm content to leave it there. Mm -hmm. I, what I like about that answer, though, is that we can be okay with things, with not knowing everything, mm -hmm. right? Like next conversation, the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians. <laughs> like, okay, wait a second. Hey, we don't know all of it. So let's hold to our views with a, with a spirit of humility and with a, a level of tentativeness saying, mm -hmm. I think this is the case, but I'm not certain. And let's kind of move forward. So, hey, let me ask another question as we finish up. And that is, Romans 16 has this long list of people that Paul sends greetings to. But he begins by mentioning a woman named Phoebe. And I know Scott McKnight says that he thinks she's the letter carrier and probably the one who's even reading the letter to the to the various churches, home churches uh, there. What do you think about Phoebe, first off? that she is she a deaconess? You think that's not correct? And uh, what was her role? Yeah. Well, the first thing to say, to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, there are a lot of in Christ and in the Lord phrases in, mm -hmm. in uh, chapter 16, not only in a theological, uh, in a more theological sense in Romans 6 and Romans 8, but here in very practical ways, our brother in the Lord and, and that, that kind of language, uh, which says that that's, that's, that's Paul's natural way of talking about Christians. You know, mm -hmm. that's what it means to be a, a Christ follower is to be in the Lord. Okay. So, Phoebe is described pretty in pretty much detail there as the word Paul uses the word diaconus. Mm -hmm. uh, that does not mean deaconess in the sense of someone distinct from with say different or lower responsibilities than a male deacon because the word diaconus is the only word that Paul knows is that knows that refers to people who are servants. We find it in Philippians 1, for instance, and so forth. So this is not a distinct word. The word de deaconess does not exist in Greek, right. at least as far as we know. This is a, this person is a diakonos, a servant of some kind. Uh, she's said to be a benefactor of, of Paul and of, of many. And uh, it's pretty clear that she is, by way of being commended here, she is at least the letter carrier. And I would agree with Scott that he, she is probably the one, based on cultural practices, who not only carries the letter, but interprets it for the Roman community. I think it's pretty fun that the first commentator on Romans was probably a, a woman, and her name was Phoebe. Uh, wow. So... You know, let's imagine the situation. The letter's being read at at, uh, at Rome, or maybe Phoebe's actually reading it, and somebody raises their hand or the cultural equivalent and says, what does Paul mean by the obedience of faith? Or what does Paul mean by we've been baptized into Christ? Well, who better to know that than the person that Paul trusted to carry the letter right. to Rome? What do you think of Junia, which some translations call her Junius, meaning a masculine there? Um, and is she called an apostle? This is Romans 16, verse 7. Is she called an apostle? And, and how do we handle that? Yeah. Well, um, the majority of scholars today, not everybody, but the majority of scholars today would say, say she is, in fact, called an apostle. And the strong majority of scholars, I would say virtually everybody, would say the name there is Junia the woman, not Junius the man. Right. It's not a matter of manuscript evidence. It's simply a matter of what's the likely uh, proper name being being translated there. The only manuscript difference is whether the name is Julia uh, rather than mm -hmm. Junia, mm -hmm. a, lamb, a lambda instead of a, uh, a, a noon. Yeah. instead of a noon. Well, let's talk about this just a little bit, and that is to say. Paul clearly feels that there are women in Rome who are of 
co-equal status with him. And we, we've talked about in language. There's also with language. The prefix co, sim in Greek, appears several times as well. And uh, Junia is called, among other things, a, a co-prisoner, mm. Andronicus and Junia. So we have this, this idea that Paul of, of ministry as a participatory reality that includes men and women. We know from 1 Corinthians 9 that apostle is broader for Paul than the 12. Right. Barnabas and, and Paul are, are among the apostles. There's no reason to think that Paul could not describe a woman as an apostle in this broader sense. If that's the case, I think it is. This is the only official apostle named in the New Testament. Um, but, you know, someone like Mary Magdalene or, or mm -hmm. um, uh, other women could certainly be called in retrospect apostoloi, uh, apostles, people who went out with and were sent out with, with the good news. So I, I think we need to pay a lot of attention to Phoebe and Junia and, and not write them off as minor characters. Okay, very good. Hey, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Um, I don't know if you have anything that you wanted to say that you didn't get out there. Hey, you guys didn't ask me this question. No, I know people can find your work on Amazon.com. Is there anything else, anywhere else that they can find your work? Uh, just about everything I've written has been with either Erdman's, Baker, or Wiffenstock. Uh, okay. So you can find it on their websites as well. Okay. And then I'll plug my favorite bookstore, Hearts and Minds Bookshop, uh, Bookstore in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, owned by my good friend, Byron and his wife. Oh, and uh, they always give you 20% discount. So support independent bookstores. They good. do lots of things by mail. Eugene Peterson was one of their biggest clients when he was living. Excellent. Excellent. I'll make note of that. And uh, Arts and Minds, Dallastown, Pennsylvania, near York. All right. Great. And I'm sure that they have a website. They do. All yeah. right. I'll check it right out. on the website. I'll put it in the web. I'll put it in the show notes for everyone else to plug into as well. Maybe I can get my books from there from now on. Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you both. It's great. Great to be here. Thanks to your audience too. Yeah, yeah. I just want to appreciate you, Michael. And like we said in the intro, the, the contribution you've made to not only the scholarly world, but how you also try to uh, make things just very practical for the layperson and for the student. I know when I was in seminary, I had to go through uh, a number of your books that were assigned reading. And it was just so uh, refreshing to read those. We just want to thank you for uh, what you contribute. Great. Thank you. My all right. Yeah. All right, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully we can get Michael back on uh, another time in the future and we'll see everyone next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.